0: Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Hello, welcome to another episode of Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi. I am so happy to have you back with us. I have today one of the most amazing women we have in South Africa, Nicola Tyler. She is the director of Business Results Group, BRG. Nicola, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Dudu. Thank you so much for making the time. After trying to track you for a while, I shall not... uh, say thank you to COVID, because it came with a lot of pain. But uh, you being rooted at home has helped this opportunity to be, to be a reality. Um, I mean, I've known you for a couple of years now. Um, but I don't think we've ever spoken about, you know, um, your upbringing, what were your most treasured memories as, uh, as a child? Uh, do you have siblings? I do
1: actually. Um, I've got a brother and a sister. I'm the youngest. I've got an older brother and my sister's the middle child. So one of each. <laughs> and what what did you get up to as a child? Interestingly, we were born into a family of business owners and entrepreneurs. So we yeah. grew up in a, a very busy house. Everyone was working pretty much most of the time. Um and uh, our first home was actually on a canal in the UK on a um, where barges used to go. So I even remember horses pulling barges and going through locks as a child. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we moved um, out of town into the countryside. So that was more around trees and fields and things like that. Beautiful. That sounds yeah. angelic. Um,
0: you tell the story about having failed school twice. You said uh, in one media interview that I read, failing at such a young age was a gift. Can you share your wisdom about this and hopefully reach someone who's watching us today who is experiencing failure and help them to think their failure is a gift and give them
1: a vision toward end? Yeah, that was a, it was kind of a big deal in my life. Um, I didn't anticipate that I would fail, but I also didn't think that I was going to succeed either. So you kind of know in the back of your mind that, that something's coming and it's probably not the answer your parents want. So I remember sitting on the toilet in the bathroom with my exam results and it was on a, a little piece of paper, a bit like you used to get your pin code from the bank, you know, the yeah. dot matrix things. And I took the piece of paper into the bathroom and I sat on the toilet and my mother's on the other side of the door. And I think I've got to open this now. And um, so she's, she's standing on the outside of the bathroom saying, how did you do? And I said, mom, I failed. And she said, what do you mean you failed? She said, you must have passed something. I said, no, mom, I failed. She said, everything. I said, all of them. She said, no. So I sat on the toilet with the lid down, obviously, and I was sitting there thinking, I'm not coming out, but I know I've got to at some stage. And eventually she persuades me to sort of come out of the, the bathroom. And she looked at me and she said, You'll be fine. That's not the reaction my mother will have. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> she just said, You'll be fine. So um, I was then promptly sent back to school to try and have another go. And it was sort of coinciding with my parents moving house. So I ended up staying with family friends. And there was a very, very tragic family incident where my closest friend at the time's brother passed away in the middle of me staying with them in the middle of me doing retakes of my exams. So I was then sort of moved around to a couple of other homes. And... um, I failed them again. <laughs> so, wow. And I've never forgotten that, that the first time I went to a graduation was when I spoke at the Jeppy Girls High School in Johannesburg. That was the first ever graduation I went to, um, which was many, many moons after leaving school. Um, and my graduation was bumping into the chemistry teacher outside the staff room. I'd finished my last exam and I've never forgotten I had a denim jacket on and I felt like vaguely rebellious. I wasn't a rebellious child. I wasn't sort of pushing the wrong buttons and sneaking behind bushes and you know smoking behind the tennis court. I was a very sort of compliant child, but I just kept failing and nobody could quite figure out why. And um, I bumped into the teacher and she said, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm actually not really sure where to go. Um, And she said, well, you can go now. I said, you mean I can leave? She said, yeah. I said, like, I can leave the premises. I don't have to come back, which was kind of like a dream coming true because I really didn't enjoy school. And she said, yes, you can go now, Nick. You can go. Wow. And I left the school and I never came back. So it was probably you then sort of you're then set with some challenges because you enter a system you know this was in the UK um but you couldn't get any job in England if you didn't have um have five passes basically you couldn't get to the police force you couldn't get to work in a greengrocers you couldn't you couldn't do anything so um the only job I could get was the only thing I could do so I I got a job as a groom for the Worcestershire hunt And um, I'm not proud of having worked in hunting, I later became a vegan and a vegetarian. Um, But that was the the only thing I could do was ride a horse. So I I rode a horse and mucked out stables um, and got every second Sunday off. Um, It was a, a kind of a hard manual labor job, literally. It was probably the hardest job I've ever had. You wake up at five, you go to bed at 10. Um, you get paid a pittance, but at least you've got a place to stay and a horse to ride. Um, and after a year, I realised that's probably not um, that's not going to get me anywhere in life. So I managed to get into uh, a college um, where on the on the day of the admissions, they um, they sort of went down the list to see which exam which which courses I would qualify for. And I'd sort of got my dad to speak to someone to think I could get in like through the back door, but on the day that didn't happen. So I ended up with an admissions officer. I was the last man standing. Everyone has gone to class and I'm standing there and he's going down the list from A to Z, literally. And he kept saying, no, love, you can't do that. Mm -mm." Oh, wow. No, no, you can't do that. (laughs) And eventually he got to the bottom and it said secretarial studies, two years. And he said, He said, no, love, you can't do that. And then right underneath that was like a one-year secretarial administrator course. And he said, I think she might let you go. She might let you attend. So I was sent across the campus. I was the only kid outside of a class. And I went and knocked on the door of an already full class. And um, I was let in. And I said to the teacher, her name was Sheila Hurlbett. And I said, I think this is the only course I can do. So she said, come in, sit down. So she welcomed me in. And I sat down that day next to one of my closest friends today, Charlotte. And um, Sheila somehow saw something in me that other teachers didn't see. And she just knew how to work me. And I literally went from failing everything to passing everything. Wow. Overnight. It was the weirdest thing.
0: Nicola, what if we never get that person? How do we get ourselves out of that failure cycle?
1: Well, I, I decided, I, when, I, when I realized that I was um, not fitting the system, I, I made a decision for myself, uh, or maybe a personal challenge, and I said, I wonder how far you can go without it. I wonder how far you can go in life without an education. And it's yeah. not to say I didn't have any education, but I definitely didn't pass the system. The system and me did not make friends. So I think at some point you decide to challenge yourself. And I, I, and I think I see failure as a gift because when you failed badly, because that's quite a big thing to fail school twice, <laughs> when you failed badly you're not afraid to experiment because you're not trying to meet any other expectation but your own yeah so it's almost as if you don't have to prove yourself to someone you just have to prove yourself to yourself so experimentation and trying and and failing i think i've probably got more confidence in that in business perhaps in other areas but yeah
0: it's a good learning ground for business, that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you are the director of Business Results Group, uh, which we call BRG. What does BRG do?
1: BRG is, I think it's amazing. It's an incredible business. Um, it's called Business Results Group because we said we focus on generating business results. But fundamentally, what we do is we grow leaders, we help build leadership capability in organizations. And we also help facilitate strategic conversations. So it's basically supporting businesses, mostly execs um, to make decisions and also get the most out of their people. And how has the journey been? Um, Long and interesting. Um, First started the business in 97, changed its name um, from competitive thinking to business results group. And I think it was 2001, 2002. and it's, a, it's fascinating because we started out almost as a, a one pony show. Um, we represented Edward de Bono and his work, largely because of my history of having worked with Edward. But then over the years, we've brought on board more products. Um, and then at the end, towards the end of 2014, um, I was joined by my now business partner, Kirstie Thompson. And the business is actually, it's a solid business. It represents international authors and their intellectual property. So we focus mostly, if not almost exclusively, on um, international content. So we try and make that content accessible and hopefully vaguely affordable to South African businesses. Yeah. So we find a lot of companies that are multinationals um, gravitate towards our products because you can get the same program all over the world. And we met when I was at Saatchi and Saatchi uh, advertising
0: around the, the De Bono work. <laughs> uh, you are a master trainer um, uh, in the full range of
1: De Bono thinking, uh, thinking tools. What attracts you to his work? It's incredible, actually, Dudu. I mean, when, when did we meet? When were you at Saatchi? Ninety-something. We met... Yeah, it must have been. It yeah, because I left Saatchi in 2001. Wow. Gosh. So we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. The, um, the De Bono work, when, when I got the opportunity to work with um, De Bono, and that was sort of around the mid-90s, I never anticipated that I would get so attached to his methods So I I was offered a role in working with him. And my first flight with him was, I think, 31 flights in 54 days. We went around the world halfway back again and carried on. It was just remarkable. I never imagined in my wildest dreams I'd get to have an experience like that. And quite literally, we dined with um, presidents and danced with paupers, literally, in that 54 days. And I I I realized something quite fundamental about humanity then. And um, I've always tried to quote it and tried to be consistent with it. But I always say richer than and smarter than does not equal better than. Yeah. So I genuinely experienced extremely successful people, wealthy people, huge sort of... Um, uh, political influences and things like that. And we literally danced with an Iban tribe chief and his family in rural Sarawak, outside about a two hour boat ride on a muddy river outside of Kuching um, on the Northern part of Borneo. And you go up this muddy path and you go up this wooden log and you're in the middle of the strangest of environments. And above us were hanging human skulls human skulls hanging from the ceiling. Oh my gosh. I mean, this is, they were historically, um, what's it, cannibals, or I think it's, yeah, yeah, something there was a lot of stuff that went on. And what was incredible is wherever Edward trained his methodologies, you know, whether it was in a boardroom in Japan um, or a, a rural community, they worked. It it transcended everything. It transcended language. It transcended um, any kind of difference that we seem to uphold. All these unconscious biases almost disappear when you enter the world of thinking, because you're surfacing thoughts. So at the end of this um, journey of working with Edward, I, I was now sort of almost addicted to thinking. I think it probably has been a, a healthy and an unhealthy addiction for the last 20 odd years. Yeah. But just the value of teaching thinking, which I, I think is possibly what I was doing as a kid. I wasn't, I was asking questions about what people were teaching me instead of remembering what people were teaching me. We share that in common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I just thought it was incredible. And, and, and thinking, I I genuinely believe, is one of the most empowering things you can do for young people. Teach them how yeah. to think. Solve problems, make decisions, come up
0: with ideas. And when I was young, when people used to say, what's your hobby? Thinking. And, and they used to look at me like, are you like what does that mean? And I think, you know, when we met, I mean, I had already started uh, reading his stuff. So I think that was part of our connection. What do you think your unique value proposition is? Um, If you are not here tomorrow, what will we
1: miss about you? I mean, something I really had to think about because I woke up the other day and I thought, if I disappeared, would anybody miss me? It was a really interesting question. So I think, you know, maybe one would and some people would. But then I was trying to think, what is that value proposition? So I think what my, I wouldn't say superpowers, but I think something that I developed a talent for over the years, and I think it's evolved. I don't think it happened that way. Um, but I'm a really bad listener sometimes. I'm, you know, my, you say something and my brain jumps to the idea. The worst thing someone can say to me is the problem is, because I think I have to solve it. <laughs> it's like, let me <laughs> solve your problem. But I developed an ability. Um, something I learned to do at college was I learned to type and listen concurrently. Yeah. So when people talk, I can capture their thoughts so I can sit in a room with people and I can have six people talking. I don't necessarily have to look at them, but I'm listening to the various conversations. And I can somehow extract a theme and take the theme into an image. I can sort of connect dots and then make it visual and simple. And I don't know if that's a USP because I'm not quite sure how to describe it. Yeah. But it's... um. It's almost an ability to distill, I wouldn't say complexity, because I don't think I'm smart enough to understand complexity, but I can take what appears to be complex in a room and try and extract the essence. I mean, that's what you have
0: to do as a strategist anyway. So it it is a skill that is required. Um, And it was the second of June 2016 when your Facebook post popped up on my cell screen saying today was my last radiation session, yay. In that post, you also shared this. You said, a cancer diagnosis can be a lonely path. You can't delegate or outsource this to anyone. I have just wanted to keep my head down and survive. Above ground was the only goal. Can you share the wisdom you learned about life and living since your diagnosis in 2020? 15?
1: Sure. That's a big one. I, you know, when something takes you by surprise, it's like, um, you're not, I, that was the last thing I anticipated was going to happen in my life. Um, I do know that I'd probably been putting myself under a lot of pressure and stress, but it wasn't, it was, um, I was, what's that saying? Blindsided. It, It was just completely unanticipated. And what was interesting about that experience is how other people responded. So what you want, or I don't know what you want, but what I felt like I wanted was attention, but I didn't want to ask for help. Yeah. The weirdest thing. Yeah. It's like you want people to come and support you, but you don't want too many people around you. So it's this sort of absolute paradox of seeing who shows up and who doesn't. Yeah. Um, and, and trying to deal with your own, it's, you sort of go inside quite quickly. And I, interestingly, I, I made a decision, as you've quoted, to put my head down and just keep going. And I think it's only now in lockdown that I've stopped moving. And I think the reflection on that, that experience is only really um, coming home to roost now but i was fascinated by other people's experiences so you get the diagnosis but someone else is in tears and i'm yeah. like why are you crying <laughs> i'm not dead <laughs> um it's just really interesting to see how other people respond and um is it our
0: discomfort at the at what this is it's more our feeling
1: about the situation. Yeah, I think, it, I think it provokes things in other people. It provokes another, the, the reflection is almost like other people's discontent. And um, I said, right, I've got to figure this out. So get your head down and get through this thing called radiation. I was fortunate that I didn't have to go through chemo. It was, option, uh, it was an option at the time, but I'd elected not to. Um, and then I just said, right, I, so as soon as I could get up and start moving, I did. You know, I did. I didn't want to sit still, so. Because you to run marathons. Well, not marathons. I'm not a marathon runner. I've done a few half marathons, but I did yeah. do one. Um, I think about eighteen months later. Wow. It was almost like just to prove to myself a half marathon in in France at night. It was fun. <laughs> so better you than me. <laughs>
0: Talk to, talk to me about the ego versus humility. You believe that ego is nothing to be ashamed of, that we must embrace it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've often said, or one of the things that I, um, I think I wrote it once, I said, we need ego to enter the race, but we need humility when we win it. Because nobody likes an arrogant winner. So it's almost as if you've got to think something of yourself to put yourself forward enough to participate. Yeah. You know, in our industry, if someone's completely without ego, then we'd probably be doing Buddhist meditations. But the reality is if we stand up and present for a living, anybody that does that must have some kind of ego. It's impossible that we don't. But if you allow ego to become hubris, it becomes a dangerous thing. And the minute you're successful, if your ego is too visible, it's almost a detractor rather than attractor. People move away from us if we are too egotistical, but we need a healthy dose of ego to be able to get up and do what we've done for so many years. So I think when you, the more successful a person becomes, the closer you are to winning, you know, whether that's um, a leadership race, uh, an athletic race, anything where you have the perception of winning. Winning is always at the expense of someone losing. That's the only way one can win. Yeah. But when you win, I think people most value humility. Yes.
0: When somebody powerful who has humility, it's the most
1: intoxicating thing to see. Yeah. And it's, I think when when ego is what kind of gets us there, it's a, it's a, difficult switch to flick when you suddenly realize actually I need to get off my high horse and take a humility pill now Um, but I think most respected leaders have a a dose of humility I can't say I've always succeeded at that. Do you suffer from the imposter syndrome
0: (laughs) and if yes uh, how are you handling it Uh, and what wisdom can you share?
1: I think the answer is yes. I, I think it would be difficult to say that I don't, given the circumstances. Um, my whole career, I was, I've always been absolutely blown away that somebody would want to phone and say, could Nicola come and present this? And I'm like, me? You really want me to do it? I think it's declined a bit in the last few years. Um, but I used to be blown away that the phone would ring and people would say, could you come back for a second time? It, 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 it almost like tickled me on the inside. It was, a, it was the strangest of feelings and always lovely to hear. Um, so I think the way that I try and see humanity um, is as equal you know, I, I like to think that I, when we go to offices uh, in the days when we used to go to offices, if I had someone in the car with me, or if I was in the car with someone else, I'd always notice or recognize know, how they treated the security guard getting into the complex or in the building. And never when we're early, because when you're early, you've got the time to be gracious. But when you're late and under pressure, it's how do you treat people then? Um, and I've it's always been like a little bit of a litmus test for me it's like let's go to a meeting and let's be a little bit late and see how you treat people and I know we all have patience patience and I know there are times when we're all inappropriate with each other Um, but I think fundamentally um, it's the richer than or smarter than does not equal better than and the fact that someone might have you know more education more money Um, doesn't make them more of a human being it's I don't think that's true so I I think if everyone is unique the question I used to ask is if everyone is unique which is true then if everyone is something it's a collective so what's the collective noun for unique and I say well it's the same all the same
0: Uh, you believe that having a sense of humor can get you through life and what you've gone through, I can imagine. Um, talk to me about how you've been um, going through this pandemic um, uh, with the stress, the trauma, the death, the loss of livelihoods uh, that people are going through. How much laughter have you experienced in the last few months?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Um I remember Hillary Clinton in an interview said, don't take yourself so seriously. Um, I think I do have a great sense of humor um, and I can certainly, I've got the ability to laugh often at myself, I hope. Um, I don't like laughing at other people's expense. It's not my nature, I don't think. But um, I find a lot of life comical. You know, I I think we do take, we, we take some things way too seriously. A global pandemic um, is different. You know, this, this was, a, again, an unanticipated event. It caught everybody by surprise. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I was very serious in this last few months. Um, and to begin, I, in fact, in lockdown level one, I, I was almost starting to experience joy again for what felt like the first time since, you know, before surgery and things like that. And this absolute sense of calm and stillness um, allowed a certain level of energy to come back to the surface. You know, when you're running, you're, you're not running physically, but when you're busy, yeah. um, you, it takes your mind off life. So, I quite enjoyed level one and level two. Um, the But there's a seriousness to this. I didn't find what was going on something to, it wasn't a laughable thing. And only because there was just a vast amount of uncertainty, people are losing their businesses. People are struggling to try and figure out things like homeschooling and, and uh, you know, the stress of people passing away in hospital and not being able to say goodbye to your family, or, I mean, I was, I wouldn't say I was traumatized, but I was, um, I wasn't even fearful. It was just like, gosh, the, the it was like an empathy for the world of what people were going through. And of course, a yeah. lot of lies, lies on Italy and then wondering how South Africa would respond. And what would happen here with so many people with, HIV and in disadvantaged communities, only to realize I think that South Africa has got huge levels of resilience, Mm -hmm. um, massive resilience and um, immunity.
0: I hope we have learned that about ourselves, Nicola. Do you think we are seeing that? Do you think we recognize that in ourselves? I I sometimes
1: worry. I, I wouldn't say worry as in it keeps me awake at night. But when I think about South Africa, I wish as a nation, more people were more confident. Wow. You know, it's the most incredible country. But if it, to be confident, you've got to be comfortable in your skin. Yeah. And there are certain things in life where I think I'm confident. You know, if, you, if I've got to walk into a boardroom with a room full of execs, I don't feel nervous any longer. But there are certain aspects of my life where I I lack confidence. So we can't be confident in everything. We'll be confident in different areas. But I think if we could help build confidence through a sense of achievement and accomplishment, it would go a long way to nation build.
0: Yeah. Um, Are you
1: trying to leave any legacy? And what is that? When I think of legacy, I think of my grandmother. And um, my grandmother passed away at 90 and she was in an old age home when she passed away, but she still had a goal to get out. (laughs) Wow! At 90, her ambition was to get out of the nursing home that she'd just been put in. And um, when when we went to her funeral, um, my brother, myself and my sister uh, all arrived in uh, Worcestershire in England. And I'd actually been speaking at a conference in Durban. There was about 900 women. And I had to jump on a plane, meet someone in Joburg, swap bags, land in the UK. I drove to a friend's house. I showered. I put on my um, sort of morning attire. And I drove to where the service was happening. And I don't know how I missed this point, but I didn't think my grandmother would be there. I thought this was a, a sort of a, memorial service, but I didn't think it was the service. Yes. So I arrived at, um, at the, uh, it, it wasn't a church, it was like a chapel, and it was full. So I'm thinking, I've, maybe I'm in the wrong place, you know, at 90, who, there can't be that many people. So then my parents arrived with my grandmother and we called her Nan, and there were flowers in the, in the hearse, hearse of saying Nan. And I looked at my parents and I said, is, is it here? And I was doing the eulogy, so I was nervous. Um, and they said, yes, this is it. So I said, there's a lot of people here. So after the service, we went to a, a hotel down the road, where The Wake, and there were all these people. So my brother and my sister and I were like, who are all these people? Some of them we knew, obviously, but there were a lot of people that we didn't know. And during that period, um, people would come up to us and say, oh, you won't, you won't remember me, but I'm Mrs. So-and-so's daughter. Oh, you won't know us, but I'm Mr. So-and-so's son. And what we realized is that at my grandmother's wake, the people who came to the funeral were the children of the people she'd employed during her career. Wow. Their parents had passed away, and the children of those people came to honor my grandmother. Wow. And so when I think of legacy, I think of her. Mm. You know, often we want to build a building or we want to, you know, write a book and do all these great things. Um, but I think maybe legacy is how we live,
0: mm.
1: not what we leave behind, but how we live.
0: Wow. I like that story. The grandchildren part. I wasn't expecting that part. (laughs) That was the twist. Uh, You're an avid reader. What what is the best book you've read this year? Uh, What are the key areas of wisdom that you want us to pull out and will make it worthwhile for us to pick it up as well?
1: Cool. So I'm an avid two-thirds reader. <laughs> I get like two thirds into the book, and yeah, I'm like, no, yeah. I can't anymore. <laughs> and a few years ago, I I used to read voraciously. I mean, I've literally got loads of books, um, and for a lot of time, I can remember titles, themes, subjects. I I really was having failed school. I think I had to find a way to educate myself. So, and I struggle to read. Reading is not easy for me. I I have to you know be in a quiet room with bright lights and. I can't lie down and read a book. I've got to sit at a desk or something like that. And I've read very, very little um, non-fiction, uh, fiction. Almost everything that I've read has uh, been nonfiction. Fiction? Non-fi- nonfiction. Nonfiction. Yeah. Business book. So this year, I've been working quite hard at sort of breaking habits Um, So I kicked off the year, and I actually did finish this book. It was by Joe Dispenza called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did it both as an audio book and as a a physical book. Very, very interesting. Um, He basically says that you have to become someone else. To change your habits, you literally have to become a different personality. So that was one that I thought was great. The second one, which was my two thirds book, was by Charles Twig, which is The Power of Habit. Oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, but I read that because I wanted to recite parts of it because we reference it in multipliers and uh, Liz Wiseman in the multipliers program has talks about the habit chain. So I wanted to know what that was. But by far, I think the better book, in, and I've, I'm one third in, but I'm doing the work of this book. I'm not just reading it. Yeah. Um, and it's called Atomic Habits by, um, I think it's James Clear, mm-hmm. Atomic Habits. And it was actually recommended to me by a client um, at the end of last year. And I I couldn't find it. And then in, sort of when we could go back to bookshops, I found a copy so Atomic Habits, um, and it's really about your identity. Um, I, I, So far, it's the one I would recommend. Uh, what's still on your bucket list to do? I thought of this question, and I realized that if, if I had, like, um, five buckets in front of me, four of them have been full of work, and one of them has been full of fun attached to work. In fact, yeah. maybe maybe three two. so most of my life events and experiences have been attached to traveling overseas because I was working I haven't done that much travel independently of um, doing something for a client so that I've actually got lots of things I'm uh, but I'm only sort of defining my buckets now I yeah. definitely definitely want to ride a quarter horse in Yosemite National Park That's an interesting – I've never heard anybody put that on their bucket list. Yeah. A Quarter Horse in Yosemite National Park. And I met someone a a couple of weekends ago in Nootook, and they've actually got a quarter horse. So um, I might get an opportunity to practice. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) That's an interesting one. That book. I mean, so many people have said, where's your book? Where's your book? And I'm like, yeah. And I I literally, I have written so much because I – Writing is a way that I clear my mind. So I'm often just yeah. sitting down and typing down thoughts. But um, I've kind of sketched out about three of them on my laptop over the years. But I, def- I haven't had the courage to say, press send. So I guess um, pressing send, um, and that's the failure bit. You know, there's me saying, oh, just experiment. It's okay to fail. But when it comes to something yeah. like that, I'm scared. I would, yeah. So there's something holding me back there. Maybe it's to do with the academic or lack of... Somebody needs to press that send for you. <laughs> you got to press send, but I'm too scared to. I've I've been too scared. And it will be an amazing send.
0: book, I'm sure. I'm sure.
1: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've got to. When I go back sometimes and I read what I've written, some of it's actually quite comical. I um, and some of it's quite serious. So it's almost. I used to have a night, a recurring nightmare. My sister doesn't know this, but she's about to find out. But I had a recurring nightmare for many years. And I was on a stage in a school. And you know, the wooden, you know, schools used to have like wooden panels around them. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was wooden. It was, like a, it was almost like a CSIR in the 1990s. And my sister is on stage with me And there's ABBA music playing. (laughs) No idea. (laughs) ABBA music. And I'm trying to get the room to be serious. And she's trying to get them to be funny. So every time I try and do my bit, she keeps playing ABBA music to disrupt me. And so I spoke to a psychologist or someone about it. And she says, that's the two sides of your personality. She said, the one, is like, serious. And the other one is, like, the the comic um so it's always like I think and which one is winning more... is the question yeah well I want I think I want the comic to win for the next 10 years I like <laughs> her more
0: <laughs> Nicola we can chat the entire day uh it has been such uh, fun I'm so happy we finally got to connect uh what is the
1: final wisdom you will like to leave us uh with And, you know, Dudu, there's a – I think I tweeted it probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, and it said, life equals energy plus time. The trick is to have enough energy to have the time of your life. Wow. So if we're above ground, be grateful. Um, You can't give anybody what you don't have yourself. And – you know, if you're healthy, energy is everything. And I don't just mean energy as in running around, but just, you know, life is energy. Mm-hmm. Um, time is all we have. Yes. So expend your energy and your time wisely. That is the perfect place to leave it
0: because that, I believe in that so much. Um, I really hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, that was Nicola Tyler. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Swami. Please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Swami is also available on YouTube, facebook watch apple and google podcasts as well as spotify enjoy
1: the wisdom journey